0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The future of skiing and snowboarding was at stake in a court case that was decided this week. That's according to Mark Peruzzi, editor of Mountain Magazine and contributing editor at Outside. Colorado Supreme Court ruled that ski areas are not liable for injuries and deaths caused by avalanches inbounds. And Mark, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh this case dates back to twenty twelve when a young father was buried in a slide at Winter Park and died. I'm gonna say up front that you think the court made the right decision in this case. Why why do you believe that?
1: Well, the the court made the right decision because avalanches are inherent to the Rocky Mountain snowpack. And no amount of avalanche mitigation will cure us of this kind of plague of
0: avalanches. And had the court decided otherwise, what do you think might have happened to resort skiing? It would change as we know it. Um, Basically,
1: any slope above 30 degrees in pitch has the capacity to avalanche in the Rocky Mountain West. And that's pretty much everything from intermediate to expert skiing and on up. And if you asked a ski patrol director to guarantee with 100 percent certainty that no slope under their management, whatever avalanche, he couldn't make that promise to a, a resort lawyer. And I would suspect that eventually they would they would start closing that that type of terrain.
0: And, and so the justices ruled, as you said, that avalanches are an inherent risk in this sport's uh, and this relates to a law, by the way, called the Ski Safety Act, which was first passed in in seventy nine and renewed in subsequent years. Um, just briefly, what did the family of the victim argue in this case?
1: The the family argued that the resort knew that there was a high avalanche danger that day and should
0: have not should not have opened the resort to skiing. And what do you make of that? I mean, the idea being that there certainly are avalanche forecasts, and sh- why wouldn't a ski area take those into account and say, you know, the risks are too high here. Let's close this particular area.
1: Well, actually, resort um, ski patrol uh, on their avalanche run avalanche routes in Colorado pretty much after every single storm cycle, and often after even just a wind event. It's it's a very routine activity for them. They're getting up at 4 in the morning, uh, going out in the dark, launching uh, either howitzer shells, avalanchers, which is a smaller uh, gas-propelled shell, and dropping hand charges and other means of of controlling avalanche slopes. And they've done this since the... 1970s, really, when uh, the science was kind of grew out of uh, some of Utah
0: ski resorts. Basically, the idea of trying to trigger an avalanche.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, that's it. exactly. In uh, the Rocky Mountain West, we have something called a, a dry slab avalanche. And it's it's a persistent condition, meaning that there's a, la- a layer of snow down in the snowpack. It could be at the ground or it could be anywhere in between in a snowpack. Or maybe multiple layers of this kind of sugar... Consistency rotted snow. And on top of that, you have layers of bonded snow which create that dry slab. So, to safely operate a ski area in the west, you do avalanche control all winter long. And so
0: you're so. saying that that is already happening and that resorts do take these steps?
1: Oh, they, yeah. They, they, they wouldn't be in business if they, if they weren't working diligently all season long to do avalanche control.
0: But this goes back to your point that even with that work, there is just no way of guaranteeing someone's safety.
1: No, there's not. And uh, I talked to one of the founders of, or one of the pioneers of this type of avalanche control mitigation work. He he now works with the Alaskan Railroad doing similar type of uh, work, and originally was at Alta, Utah, where the science was born, and they were the first resort to ever throw explosives. And... He says, essentially, it's, you know, it's your avalanche forecasters or, or, or controllers' worst moment is when they actually open terrain because there is always going to be residual uncertainty. They, they can't blast every, every square centimeter of the slope with, with, with bombs. And,
0: and so I want to ask about what this means for the average skier and snowboarder. When I think of an avalanche forecast, I often think of backcountry, right. you know, and so that, that that's an alert to those folks who go out of bounds. It sounds like the message from this ruling is, I have a responsibility here as a skier as well, and that when I go to a resort, I ought to pay attention to the avalanche forecast? Would you say that that is a lesson here? I think that is a
1: lesson from this case, and, you know, these are tragic losses of life of of young people and uh, the the two cases that are that are before the courts in Colorado Winter Park being one of them but the the takeaway for all of us is that in my opinion is that you know we've we've kind of been lulled into this false sense of security in part because of resort marketing and you know we went from going to ski areas in the 1970s to going to destination ski resorts now and it feels frankly a little bit like Disneyland but right if you can are, get a
0: hamburger yeah. and you know or something even fancier lobster or something like that well, surely i must be safe on the slopes
1: yeah exactly and but in reality these are these are giant 13 12,000 foot peaks in Colorado and
0: there's wind and there's weather happening all the time yeah. <laughs> You made reference to another case that's pending now from the family of a 13-year-old boy who died at Vail. This was also in 2012. I'm not going to ask you to comment on that case in particular because I understand you're friends with the boy's family. But I do wonder, has there been an increase in fatalities from avalanches inbounds in recent years? Where do we stand with the numbers? The, the numbers, it's probably too soon to, to say
1: right now if there's actually been a spike um throughout history, throughout the since the nineteen seventies it's been like one death every two years or so in the US from, from an imbalanced avalanche. Okay. Uh there was a spike obviously with with these two deaths in Colorado in two thousand and twelve. Prior to that the the most recent avalanche death was in A Basin in two thousand five.
0: Um, the industry will tell you that this is very rare. Are they yeah. right?
1: yeah they're 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 right if you look at the numbers um there are fifty five million skier days in a season and if if the deaths are if you have an avalanche death for every one every two or three years that's that's almost lottery type of odds.
0: I will say that if you look at avalanche deaths, both inbounds and out of bounds, those over the last 50 years have certainly been on the rise. Oh, sure. Let's go more to what both resorts and um, individual skiers and snowboarders can do here. Um, Is there equipment, for instance, that resorts could hand out, I don't know, an avalanche beacon or something like that to all comers? I don't see that
1: happening right now, but it's not like that idea is without precedent. In Canada, there are certain resorts where entire sections of the resort are closed to people who aren't carrying avalanche safety gear, which is an avalanche transceiver, a shovel, and a probe. Similar in Silverton, Colorado, where uh, it's more of a backcountry ski resort, which is an oxymoron, but they treat all of their terrain like backcountry. So if you're a guest whether you're guided during the, the belly of the season or unguided in their shoulder season you carry a, an avalanche beacon shovel and a probe and ski with a partner.
3: Mm.
0: Yeah. Have you seen any other steps that resorts have taken? Uh well Bridger Bowl is
1: another example in in um, in western Montana they have a they have an area of chutes they're they're kind of small like 200 vertical foot shots, but they, they're they hard to avalanche control, and you can get a lot of sloughing in there. So they require people to go through a gate and uh, have a beacon check, and they have to carry a shovel and a probe as well and ski with a partner.
0: Yeah. You're a father, Mark, aren't you? I am. Yeah. What do you tell your kid? I, both my
1: kids ski. My son's a really good skier. He's 14, and we ski a lot of powder together, and uh, I tell both the kids that... that to be very careful. We skied in a group. Uh, they, we The kids carry whistles. We all carry whistles. And because another threat beyond an avalanche burial is to be stuck in a tree well. Uh, as recently as 10 years ago, more people were dying because they were stuck in tree wells than they were in inbounds avalanches. Describe what that is. A tree well is if you have a big fir tree in the the forest and all the snow is kind of falling down that triangular shape and landing around the tree, and then you end up with a well right at the trunk. And it's very easy to to fall into that well and get your skis tangled up, and then the snow buries you. and You you essentially die as if you were in an avalanche, but it's just an an immersion death.
0: To go back to the Supreme Court ruling, the state Supreme Court ruling uh, about inbound, avalanches. It was a 5-2 to two decision in favor of Winter Park. There was a dissent, and one justice argued that this ruling effectively means resorts have no duty to warn skiers of avalanche risk or to close runs that are risky. She said they have no requirement even to do blasting and other mitigation. Uh, but I imagine if they want to stay open and avoid headlines, they'll continue to do these things anyway. But what do you think of her concerns, that maybe this offers too wide a berth to resorts? I don't,
1: I don't think those concerns are founded. In the, in the 1950s and 60s, when resort skiing was just taking off in the U.S., there were actually more people dying inbounds at ski resorts from avalanches than there were out-of-bounds skiing. And the the industry put all of its focus onto making sure that that, that trend was reversed. And they've done a remarkable job. And and the due diligence that ski patrollers across the West do to, to keep, keep mountains open is, is kind of mind-blowing.
0: Huh? Uh, last question, Mark. Uh, we have taken as a lesson from this conversation, I suppose from the ruling as well, that individual skiers and snowboarders ought to look at the avalanche forecast, even if they're going to what they perceive to be a Disneyland of the slopes. Wh- what's the best source for that? Do you turn to the Avalanche Information Center?
1: I think you could turn to the, the to the CAIC and and get a forecast. I think it's also incumbent upon skiers, especially today's power powder skiers, who are charging hard, harder than they ever have before. This is kind of this lust to ski powder snow, trying to get to every last scrap of it. That they need to they need to ski at the resort with their avalanche eyeballs open. And most people who are skiing at that level have. Had at least some experience in backcountry skiing and or ski, skied with a guide before. And they should certainly. they should consider skiing with a beacon and with a buddy, and uh, and re- recognizing that things change throughout the day. If it's snowing two inches an hour. What's happening at 9, 9 a.m. Is, is
0: quite different than what's happening at 2 p.m. And there are certainly uh, courses for this. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much, Ron. Mark Peruzzi, editor of Mountain Magazine, based in Boulder, and contributing editor for Outside Magazine, talking to us about inbounds avalanches in the wake of a state Supreme Court decision. Just ahead, as the Swiss vote on a mandatory minimum income... We revisit an experiment in Denver in the 1970s to guarantee poor people a salary. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Here's an idea to alleviate poverty. Give out cash. Switzerland may try it. The country will vote Sunday whether to give about $30,000 a year to every Swiss citizen. Proponents think a basic income is a basic human right. Turns out something similar happened in Denver, but on a much smaller scale. From 1971 to 1982, the U.S. government ran an experiment giving an allowance to poor families in Denver and Seattle. Carl Weiderquist is an associate professor at Georgetown University, Qatar, and he studied this experiment. He joins us via Skype. Carl, welcome to the program.
2: Great to be here. Thanks.
0: Swiss voters put this measure on the ballot. I'll say that the government by and large opposes it. Uh, but first off, how does the experiment conducted here in Denver uh, differ briefly from what's being debated in Switzerland?
2: Well, it differences. It, the differences are two main things. One is that it was a negative income tax experiment instead of a basic income, which are similar but not the same. And the other is that it was a test that tested only a very narrow portion of the population, whereas the basic income in Switzerland, everyone would be eligible for. Uh, A negative income tax and basic income are both uh, different ways of creating a basic income guarantee. A basic income guarantee is an idea that we have some line under your income that we don't want your income to go below, something above zero. So Mm. for For no reason, whether you're unemployed or sick or just out of the labor force, we don't want your income going below a certain point. A basic income does that by actually giving everyone an income, whether they're rich or poor, with no means test, no worth requirement, nothing. And then, of course, it has to tax everyone back. So most people will be paying more taxes than they receive in basic income. Um, And the negative income tax does it by giving it only to those net recipients, only to those people who would be, who would pay, who would receive more in basic income than they would pay in taxes under the basic income project. And that's the way they did it in the Denver and Seattle income maintenance experiment.
0: Right. And so it was much more targeted. And about how much money did it mean for these particularly uh, poor families in Denver and Seattle?
2: Well, they tested a wide range of uh, of uh, numbers de- depending on family size. Luckily, they uh, they did it in relation to the poverty level, so it's kind of easy to convert. The range was the lowest; the low end was seventy five percent of the poverty line, and the high end was one hundred and forty eight percent of the poverty line. Um, and that the poverty line varies by by uh, Uh, The size of the family. So if it was one person living alone, 75% of the poverty, that'd be just under $9,000 a year. But say a family of four, if they were eligible for the 1.48 times the poverty line, they'd be getting almost $36,000 a year. So this family of four would still be getting, uh, that's quite a bit less than a family would get under the Swiss basic income plan.
0: Okay. Um, And so it obviously depended... What in general was the federal government trying to learn with this?
2: Well, they're trying to learn how this program attacks policy, how it attacks poverty, uh, what can it do for people, um, and what are the costs and effects of it. And they found a lot of interesting things, that it does incredible things. Um, to reduce poverty and the side effects in poverty, including things like students doing better in school, students staying in school. These are some of the holy grails of direct intervention in poor kids' lives. How do you get them to stay in school? Well, it turns out if their families aren't dirt poor, they stay in school longer. Mm. You got better nutrition. You got lower incidence of low birth, birth weight babies. Um, less infant mortality. And even in the in one experiment, they found fewer incidents of people uh, uh, with psychiatric disorders. Um, so they found a lot of very positive results.
0: On the other hand, if you guarantee people uh, some kind of income, uh, isn't there less of an incentive to work?
2: Well, actually, not the way economists... Uh, put the term because it is a lump sum payment. Either whether you do it as a negative income tax or as a basic income, you define it so it's a lump sum payment. So the actual receipt of the the actual receipt of whatever it is you're getting, um, the actual receipt of the basic income, uh, does not give you an incentive to say, "Oh, I need to work less." So so that I can get this the way our current system does when you have unemployment insurance, if you get a job, you lose your unemployment insurance when you have a basic income, you get a job um, you 're always better off with that job you keep your you keep your basic income so as a mm. lump sum, it does not have a work disincentive effect at least in marginal terms, which are very important to economists. It does have an income effect when you have more money and that money doesn 't require you to work then you, it is possible for you not to work, and uh, and you did see some of those effects. Um, the one of the things that they tested was that the the negative income tax they were testing was all, often very more generous than the the aid to families dependent children and the other programs that existed at the time. And from this program being more generous than the existing program, you did find that that the control group, that is is the group that wasn't receiving the negative income tax, worked relatively less per week than the experimental group receiving the negative income tax. But that was because the people who received the negative income tax took more time to find a good job, not because anybody actually dropped out of the labor force. I didn't find any, any evidence of that whatsoever.
0: All right. So as you describe it, it sounds... Successful in some ways in in improving the quality of life for folks. Would you, would you sum it up that way?
2: Oh yeah, I mean that's that's what redistributive programs are for. And if you look at what kind of things this can do to improve people's lives who are living on the margins in our society, um, it's very successful.
0: Why did it stop?
2: Well, it was an experiment, um, and uh, it was now it was not meant to be permanent. There were four experiments in the U.S. and one in Canada. All of them were meant to be temporary. Um, Now, there was very serious consideration of creating a basic income guarantee in the United States. As a matter of fact, it passed the House of Representatives twice in the early 70s and failed fairly narrowly in uh, in the Senate. That was a very watered down version, but was something along these lines. That was when streamlining and improving the welfare system was very popular in the 60s and 70s with the war on poverty and and the republicans in the form of nixon's family assistance plan kind of signing on to that but then once you got to about 1980 it was all about cutting the welfare system not reforming and improving it um and even the so-called welfare reform we got under clinton was a cut very much more than it was a reform.
0: You know, some of the language um, around this debate is often whether you give a handout or a hand up um, if you, you know, give someone a fish or teach them to fish. Um, is there something fundamentally stagnating about just giving people money for some, I, I don't know, is it a permit, on a permanent basis or I, when, once they cross a, a particular income threshold or what?
2: No, uh, uh, for basic income, you're always eligible so that if your income goes down, um, something is there to support you. Um, this worry is something that, oh, that direct handouts won't work. I think it's, it comes from two things. One is that a lot of the programs we have are, are, requ- require you not to work. You only get unemployment insurance if you're not working. Um, and so you have a good incentive not to work until that runs out. And that's also, if you're on unemployment insurance, you get offered a job, you don't know if it's a good job. Um, you're taking a big risk because if you quit, you're not, you don't have the same eligibility. So you could take a job. It turns out you've got a horrible boss who treats you horribly. You quit your unemployment insurance gone. Uh, basic income and negative income tax don't work that way. Uh, the other worry is that, we 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 all kind of like to think that we're better than those poor people, that the reason that we're successful and they're not is because we know what we're doing and they're making all these mistakes. And if they just became obedient service, uh, obedient servants to those minimum wage employers, they'd all eventually work their way up. And that's simply not true. A minimum wage job will leave you deeply in poverty, except for especially if you have uh, if you have uh, a family. And the basic income is kind of like a net. If you want a trapeze artist to do better tricks, uh, the best thing to do is give them a net. It's, you can give them all the training you want and how to do trapeze. If you want them to not be afraid to go out there and jump there in the labor force and do everything. What you need is to have a net to catch them.
0: Thanks so much for shedding light on uh, what's happening in Switzerland and how it relates to this uh, historical chapter in Denver. You're welcome. That is Carl Weiderquist, pardon me. He's an associate professor at Georgetown University, Qatar, and he joined us via Skype, as you heard there, ahead of a vote in Switzerland on a guaranteed minimum income. As we've been exploring, something similar was tried in Denver in the 1970s. Coming up next, Schizophrenia Through a Child's Eyes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Schizophrenia plays a major role in the unraveling of the Johnson family. It is a fictional family at the center of the new book, Fig, the first from Boulder writer Sarah Elizabeth Shantz. The book follows a young girl trying to save her mom from the disease. Fig won a Colorado Book Award for young adult fiction. Shantz spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis.
4: Sarah, welcome. Thank you for having me.
5: I understand the inspiration for the novel came from hearing a girl's voice in your head. What did she
4: say? I knew she was lonely, and I knew that she was into reading, and that she had a relatively vivid imagination. But other than that, I didn't know exactly what she had to say yet. And then I started to sort of explore her mother more.
5: Of course, there are parallels between you hearing voices and the disease that you're talking about, schizophrenia. Did you think about
4: that? Not at the time. Um, Now that I've talked about schizophrenia in the book as much as I have, it's definitely difficult to overlook the fact that I tell people that I hear voices in my head. I know a lot of authors who hear voices in their head, and I think there is a distinction
5: Well, obviously, you have to have an imagination and be thinking about characters while you're thinking about writing a novel. Yeah. So how did you come to the conclusion that this mother's condition was going to be schizophrenia?
4: Originally, the idea was I had a couple of friends who had wanted to have a home birth experience and they had to have emergency C-sections. And so they were struggling with sort of the trauma, the complex trauma of having this radical surgery and yet having a healthy baby so people didn't understand the grief that they were experiencing. And that was where I was first starting to experiment with why Fig's mother has come undone. But I realized that it needed to be more than just that grief and what happens if that grief is also mixed with something more serious like a mental illness and schizophrenia happened to match perfectly with everything um, around sometimes thinking that she's still pregnant even though she's not and then the fact that hormonal influences is one of the big triggers for the onset of symptoms
5: And we should say that in the book, Fig's mom has a C-section, and that's traumatic for her. You've said you don't personally know anyone with schizophrenia. So how did you learn about it for this book?
4: I did a lot of research, and I guess I should be correct in the fact that I don't know anybody who's been officially diagnosed with schizophrenia. But I read a lot of memoirs. Um, That was one of the first starts that I had with doing the research. Um, I also have a manual that's more for therapists and psychiatrists dealing with people who have the disease. Um, I've read books by psychologists studying the disease in particular.
5: Fiona Johnson, or Fig, as her family calls her, is your protagonist. She lives on a farm in Kansas with her mother and father, and her uncle and grandmother often help with the farm work and help take care of the mom. You tell the story through Fig's eyes, and the entire novel is a chronological series of journal entries starting back in 1982. Fig is six then. What was so important about using that child's eyes to look at this disease?
4: I think what I was really interested in was the distinction between sanity and insanity and when those lines get blurred. And so dealing with a young character with a vivid imagination, I wondered what it would be like for her to be raised by someone who is delusional. And at what point would a child begin to recognize that what her mother is seeing or hearing ...isn't real, and then with the countdown of being young, I think one of the things that had a, had interest me about the disease is this idea that 19 is the common age, especially right. for women, that the onset of symptoms come along, and so then it sort of becomes a countdown as Fig begins to realize that her mother isn't well, then she starts to worry that it's going to happen to her as well.
5: And just briefly... You know, when this starts to come on at, say, 19 for women, what are the initial symptoms?
4: Usually voices. You know, the, the hallucinations can manifest in all sorts of ways. Sometimes it's more physical. People often feel insects crawling on their skin. Usually voices is what I've been, and, you know, they're being told to do things that they ordinarily wouldn't do.
5: You say Fig is not you, but in the author's notes, you write that both Fig and Mama are, quote, woven from numerous strands of my own DNA. What do you mean by that?
4: Fig's childhood and her imagination and even her loneliness is very similar to what I was like as a child. Um, And then as far as her mother goes, I would say that Mama is an extreme version of myself as a mother. It can be. So you're a
5: mother now. I
4: am. I have a 15 year old daughter named Story. And then I have a bonus daughter named Kaya who's almost 25.
5: And that bonus daughter is your stepdaughter. Fig has this obsession with the dictionary and definitions. What does she get out of this relationship with words and their meanings?
4: I think that it helps her articulate what her experience is and begin to understand what her journey is, where she's going. I think of sort of linguistic relativism, and the more vocabulary you have, the more words, the better you can understand your environment.
5: At one point, Fig's father tells her she needs to make a sacrifice. Um, He asks Fig to give away her baby doll because it's a trigger for her mom's schizophrenia. And it's really a turning point in the novel because it's when Fig takes on the task of trying to save her mom. And I'll have you read a bit of that section.
4: I begin by sacrificing my beloved rabbit foot. I sacrifice my own good luck to bring mama all the good fortune she might ever need. This is what I say as I stand at the top of the waterfall before I throw the blue charm into the rushing white water of the Silver River. There are two directions it can go. The rabbit foot will either resurface in the pool along our side or follow the river as it rushes on, through the town of Adora, out of Kansas, and eventually out to sea. The water folds over my sacrifice, and then I see it one last time, carried over the rocks and tossed into the deep black chamber below. And this is when I say, please make my mother better. And when I do, I feel as if I am talking to a god.
5: This is such mature, big stuff for a young child to be thinking about. And she soon realizes that material sacrifices aren't enough. Um, So she creates what she calls the calendar of ordeals. What does that mean?
4: So the calendar of ordeals is a very elaborate calendar that she makes of rituals that she needs to perform on a daily basis. One of the hardest rituals is the day when she can't touch metal of any kind. There's other days where she can't drink or days where she can't say certain words, days where she can't talk at all, days where she can't touch anyone. And I think she believes that if she can get through all of these rituals that she'll be able to save her mother Of course, that doesn't work out for her.
5: I mean, that sounds like another sort of mental illness, this uh, obsessive compulsive disorder.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think that is when the OCD begins to fully manifest. And the more that she keeps trying to rework the calendar over and over again, and essentially she's losing herself. She is ultimately sacrificing herself, but she's also finding that it's not working. And there's times where she's doing it too to prevent from inheriting the disease herself. And I think she gets lost between who she's saving. You say Fig's
5: physical body is also a calendar of sorts, how?
4: So she suffers from a disorder known as dermatillomania. And the first time that she begins to pick at her skin is when she's six years old, and it's right after her mother's been released from a hospital for the first time. And I was really interested in what happens, you know, all kids pick scabs to some extent, but what happens when that type of habit becomes a serious habit? And so over the course of the novel, the picking becomes more and more prevalent and more and more dangerous as well. Um, The fact that she's literally picking on herself was something that appealed to me about just choosing this particular self-harm.
5: And why a calendar?
4: I think with a calendar... You know, it's similar to somebody doing notches on a wall if they're in prison. She's able to sort of not only perpetuate the wounds that she feels inside, but the scarring itself creates this physical marker on her body.
5: Getting back to this idea of words and the weight that they can carry, the word crazy comes up a lot in the book. What does that word mean to you?
4: I think it's a weighted and very derogatory term that kids in particular throw around quite a bit. Some adults do as well. But to have somebody call your mother crazy, that is one of the bigger insults, especially as a child. So when your mom actually is crazy, the weight of that word becomes enormous.
5: Your novel won a Colorado Book Award in the young adult fiction category. It's an intense book, as we said, with some really dark moments. And I understand teens weren't the initial audience that you thought of when you wrote the book.
4: No, I think I actually had more in mind women my age in particular. They're going to relate to some of the time period references I think I was thinking of it as the classic coming-of-age novel. The books that I was reading at the time that have always inspired me would be things like To Kill a Mockingbird, Bastard of Carolina, those types of difficult coming-of-age stories. Yeah, and it just ended up selling as YA, which has been interesting.
5: Are you happy that it's gone that way, or do you have mixed feelings?
4: I love the... Book. I do think that it came out gorgeous. It is interesting to sometimes, it's not what a lot of teens expect. It's not what they're used to reading. And I don't think it's necessarily the dark subject matter so much. There's a lot of dark things happening in YA. But there's other aspects. There's no romance in the book. And Fig is actually a teenager for less than half of the book, which is very, very different from most YA books. Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you.
0: Boulder writer Sarah Elizabeth Schantz speaking with Andrea Dukakis about her debut novel, Fig. It just won a Colorado Book Award. You can read an excerpt at CPRnews.org. And we'll be right back with a story we hope goes over easy with you. It's about the Denver omelet. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Philadelphia has cheesesteaks. Chicago has deep dish pizza. And Denver has an omelet with ham, cheese, onions, and bell peppers. It got some love in the 1994 Quentin Tarantino film Pulp Fiction.
2: One minute, they're having
4: a Denver omelette. Next minute, someone's sticking a gun in their
0: face. Well, Matt Masick has eaten lots of Denver omelettes, and he digs into the dishes past in the current issue of Colorado Life magazine.
3: The Denver omelet didn't start as an omelet. It started as the Denver sandwich, which is basically a Denver omelet between two pieces of toast. So it's an egg sandwich. It's an egg sandwich. It's one of the first big popular egg sandwiches. Uh, It really started appearing on the scene about 1900. And by 1950, there are Magazine and newspaper articles calling it one of the most popular sandwiches in the country. Uh, In 1959, there is a, a nationally syndicated article saying the Denver sandwich is the most popular sandwich in the country with a name.
0: Wow! And it's ham, cheese, onions, bell peppers between two pieces of bread.
3: Right. And so the heyday was in the 1950s. And by the 1980s, the Denver omelet had surpassed the sandwich in popularity. Until today, the Denver sandwich is all but extinct. Uh, there are only a few places where you can still get them regularly. For some reason, Wisconsin is a hotbed of okay. Denver sandwiches. <laughs> okay.
0: I guess they have the cheese for it. Um, is there a Denver sandwich to be had in Denver? No.
3: No. I searched high and low to find an actual Denver sandwich in the Denver city limits. Can't be done, as far as I know. You can prove me wrong. But in Arvada and in Wheat Ridge are a couple of restaurants that still have them. And there's one in Wheat Ridge. Lil Nick's Pizza has a Denver sandwich of sorts.
0: Of sorts. They have their own spin on it?
3: Right. Right. Uh, The owner, Bob Quintana, grew up slinging hash in restaurants in North Denver. It started in the 1950s, and he made a ton of Denver sandwiches. Had the Hispanic and Italian communities there. He took those influences, and on the Denver sandwich that he has, it's called the North Denver Sandwich, has mozzarella cheese, has a roasted green chili, and the best part, it comes with a side of marinara for dipping.
0: Oh, wow. The infusion of both the Italian and the Mexican there. Uh, Where is the other Denver sandwich?
3: It's uh, at George's Cafe in Arvada. It's basically like a BLT, except instead of bacon, you have a little bit of Denver omelet.
0: I suppose the more fundamental question is whether it's a sandwich or an omelet, why that combination of ingredients became the Denver omelet.
3: There are a few theories on this. Uh, One of them is that people out on the frontier might have less than fresh eggs and might want to mask the spoiled flavor of it. Uh, So you throw those things on to to make it taste nice. Okay.
0: (laughs) And what are some other theories?
3: Well, uh, one is that Chinese railroad laborers came up with this uh, in the 1800s, sort of modifying their egg food young and turning it into a omelet slash sandwich.
0: Ah, there's actually a marker that is, a, you know, about the birthplace of the Denver omelet.
3: Yeah. Uh, downtown on California, between 15th and 16th Streets, there's a tiny little plaque on the sidewalk that you can walk over without noticing, saying, this is the birthplace of the Denver omelet. They don't mention the sandwich
0: because it's a little too complicated for a plaque. <laughs> It's actually got the recipe on it. We'll post a photo to cprnews.org. What do you think the relationship is between this city and its omelet and or sandwich?
3: You know, it's a little bit ambivalent. You know, Philly is proud of their cheesesteak. Chicago is proud of their deep dish pizza. And Denver, eh, not so much. (laughs) Some people even call it a Western omelet, which I just find horribly unpatriotic.
0: (laughs) Unpatriotic. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Matt Masick edits Colorado Life magazine and writes about the mysterious origins of the Denver omelet in the current issue. Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State under President Clinton, will deliver the commencement address Saturday at the University of Denver. It's a homecoming for her. She went to middle and high school in Denver, was sworn in as a U.S. citizen in the city, her family fled Czechoslovakia when the Soviets took over after World War II. In 2008, I sat down with the secretary. DU had just named its School of International Studies after her father, Joseph Corbell, who taught there. What sticks out in my mind is that one of his students at DU was another secretary of state, Condoleezza Rice. We'll hear about that in just a bit. Let's listen back to the interview. Secretary, thank you for being with us.
6: I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you.
0: Can you give me an example of a decision that you made as Secretary of State that was influenced by something you learned from your father?
6: Well, there were a number of them, but I think one that was very clear was in terms of ending the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo. My father really had felt that it was essential to stand up to evil and to killing of innocent people. That was the lesson that he brought with him from World War II. In addition to that, my father had been the Czechoslovak ambassador to Yugoslavia. And so uh, the combination of knowing that we, the United States, all powerful, could not stand by and watch ethnic cleansing take place in a part of the world that I knew well, I think was the one that I most felt that his spirit was kind of flying over me.
0: His voice was with you in those in those days, weeks, months.
6: Very much so, and saying this is not easy, but it is the right thing to do.
0: How did your father teach you about foreign policy? Was it was it over dinner that you absorbed this? Was it more formal than that?
6: It was constant. Some people ask me how did I get into what I'm doing. There never was a choice. I was. Uh, the oldest child. We uh, spent the war in England, and then, uh, as I said, he was ambassador. You know, the the little girl in the national costume who gives flowers at the airport? I used to do that for a living. And I grew up with the concept of foreign policy and international relations. Uh, Every time that my father was interested in a subject, uh, I would get interested in it. Uh, I, I was the perfect daughter. I am still the perfect daughter.
0: You are still the perfect daughter. What does that mean?
6: Well, first of all, my father was a fantastic father in terms of a role model, and, and I wanted to have him tell me that I was wonderful and that I had actually was doing what he wanted me to do. So he's been dead a long time. I'm old, but I still think about what would my father do.
0: Uh, let's listen to a quote from your father. All this boils down
6: to the conclusion that freedom knows no national barriers and that it scatters and deepens in all directions. An understanding of this changing face of freedom unveils the secret
0: to progress and to peace. What does that tell us about your father?
6: He so believed, not just in freedom, but that any individual can make a difference if that individual has the freedom to act. And so that combination of freedom, the fragility of democracy and the individual, were his lodestars for uh, how he saw uh, international relations.
0: Your family came to Denver in 1949 so that your father could teach at DU. Uh, You attended Maury Middle School and Kent, which was a, a private girls' school at the time. I read that you actually took your oath of citizenship in Denver.
6: I did. Do you remember that? Absolutely. And it was down at the courthouse. And when I come to Denver, uh, I always uh, somehow go by the courthouse. Did you this time? I did. I loved becoming an American. And one of the things that I did on July Fourth, 2000, at Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home, I was there when we swore in a whole new group of other American citizens, and I handed them their papers. And I said to them, "I have a paper just like this. It is the most valuable piece of paper you will ever have."
0: As we mentioned, one of your father's students at DU was Condoleezza Rice. Did you know her at the time?
6: No, I did not. My father died in 1977, and at that time he already was pretty well known in Denver and. There were lots of tributes and flowers, and among the flowers uh, was a ceramic pot in the shape of a piano with a variety of leaves in them, and I said to my mother, where did this come from? And she said, it's from your father's favorite student, Condoleezza Rice. I later learned she had come to the University of Denver as a music major, hence the piano, and had taken a course from my father, and he persuaded her to become an international relations major. So I didn't know her until in 1987, when I was working for Michael Dukakis, uh, assembling foreign policy advisors. So I called her up and I said, you know, would you like to be an advisor to Michael Dukakis? And she said, Madeline, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm a Republican. And I said, Condi, how could you be? We had the same father.
0: What's the key difference in the way that each of you has interpreted your father's message? I mean, you've acknowledged very different outcomes between the two of you.
6: Well, you'd have to ask her. I mean, from my own, uh, what I learned from my father, first of all is the importance of working with others, whether you want to call it multilateralism or operating through international institutions. Um, My father believed very much in a moral foreign policy, not a moralistic foreign policy. Moral in terms of... Uh, America living up to our ideals of human rights and freedom and a sense of democracy, not one where we are going around and telling everybody what to do. You know, People sometimes ask me, what would my father have thought about what I did as Secretary of State and what would he think about now over Condi Rice? I have no idea, frankly. I would hope that he would have thought I was the perfect daughter.
0: And about Condoleezza Rice? I don't
6: know. I don't know. I think he would be very, very proud of the fact that he had, in fact, trained two secretaries of state, both of whom were women, and that uh, both of us are very proud of how he inspired us.
0: Madam Secretary, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. That is former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright speaking with me in 2008 about her late father Joseph Corbell, who taught at the University of Denver. Albright will deliver the commencement address at DU on Saturday. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News.